It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. One thing that has been on my mind and my heart a lot, not just this year in 2020 when we're recording this episode, I think it's been on my mind and heart a lot since I entered my 40s, if I'm honest about it, has been the idea of our relationship to fear and our relationship to how we navigate this topic of fear. One of the things that Whitney and I love to talk about on the podcast, if it's your first time joining us here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, dear listener, is the dynamics of how our mindset and our belief systems and our relationship to fear and purpose and heart and soulfulness play out in our lives. But we haven't really dedicated an entire episode to the dynamics of fear because this is something that's I guess I've just been waiting for the right moment to bring this to Whitney. And and if it is your first time joining us or you are a longtime listener, we do things very improvisationally here in the sense that Whitney or I will have an idea or a nudging or an inspiration for a topic. And we won't let each other know what that is. We just kind of surprise one another. And so if you ever heard either of us react with a, oh, interesting, it's because the other person doesn't really know what the other person's going to talk about. This idea of fear, though, I think it's pretty loaded. It's pretty multidimensional in the sense that people have fears around different things. Some person can be, you know, mortally afraid of one thing and it doesn't bother someone else. An example would be probably public speaking. There was a a survey that went around, I think, in the the mid 2010s, surveying a few thousand Americans about what their greatest fears were. And right at that top of the list, I believe it was even greater than death, the fear of death, was the fear of public speaking. Now, for me, that's not a big deal. Public speaking is, it ain't no thing. I got that in the bag. But apparently, thousands, perhaps if we extrapolate it, millions of people are mortified by the idea of getting up in front of a group of other humans and speaking publicly. So the episode today, I want to dedicate, Whitney, to talking about not just our relationship to fear, but I want to talk about our greatest fears. I really want to dig in and and go there because I don't believe that I've ever admitted publicly what my greatest fears are. And I've been really ruminating on this and meditating on this subject, especially during this time of quarantine and shelter at home that we've been in during the COVID-19 crisis. I've just been really literally meditating on my relationship to these giant fears. And one thing that I, I guess I've been really thinking about is a couple of books, one we've mentioned before, which is The Fear Cure by Lissa Rankin and her wonderful perspectives on loss and death and letting go and fear. The other one is The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. This is a book that came out, I believe it was 2012. Bronnie Ware, who was a palliative caregiver, was basically compiling these observations that she had of people who were at the end of their lives and the regrets that they had. And I guess that's it's probably an interesting jump off point before I pass the ball back to you, Whitney, to, to talk about fears. But she talked about these top five regrets. And the first one she mentioned was, I'd wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. The second one was, I wish I hadn't worked so much. The third one was, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings more. The fourth, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. 
And number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. Now on that list, there's definitely one that I remember reading this back in 2012 when it came out, but it's related to the topic today. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. That one, it cuts me right to the heart because I often wonder, Wit, if I'm really living my authentic life, this is something that still kind of haunts me and I, I think about it all the time, or if I'm doing what others expect of me. That one particularly cuts to the bone. Do you ever ruminate on that? Do any of these resonate with you or hit you the way they hit me? Absolutely. Well, I think to me like this, this number one, which is I wish I'd live a life that was true to myself. It's kind of challenging though, right? Because what's true and meaningful to us in one moment can change and maybe not be as meaningful or the things that are we're passionate about or excited about or, or truer to us, these things can change. You know, if you're a human being who is really a seeker, I think, in this life, someone who is constantly looking for new information and growth and transformation, then meaning naturally, I think, changes for you, what you're passionate about, what you're involved in, what you're focusing your energy on. So it's almost like a bit of a moving target, this idea of living authentically to oneself and, and being true to oneself. And for me, if I go back to fear, you know, and in particular at the end of my life, and we've touched on this in, in a previous episode about aging where I talked about my fear of mortality and Whitney kind of talked me off a ledge. She's like, you're only 42. You're not even halfway through your life yet. Of course, we don't know how long we're going to live. We never know that. But I suppose this idea of death for me is not so much the fear of dying and leaving this body and whatever may be waiting in the next incarnation or the other side of this reality or whatever you want to believe in, heaven, multiple dimensions, whatever that may be. I think it's this idea that I didn't do everything I wanted to do in this lifetime. You know, and there are some big things in terms for me of things that I know I haven't done yet that I've been putting off, that I've been afraid to do, that I've been afraid to focus my energy on. And I think I've been really trying to just sit with why do I and why do we as humans have this tendency to continue to put things off that are meaningful to us? Why do we do that? You know, things that we know we're passionate about, things that we know are deeply meaningful, are in our hearts that that we dream of, the things that we daydream about, maybe when we're at work or we have a lunch break or when we have a little downtime during a day, or in particular during this time of shelter in place we've been going through. Perhaps there's been some dreams that have been gnawing at us or picking at us or poking us. And I guess the question is, why do we hold ourselves back? Because there may be a day of reckoning for us, you know, near the end of our lives, or if something suddenly happens to us, where maybe we work on the fact that we haven't really given it our all or done everything that we really wanted to do. And I guess in a big summer, if we talk about our greatest fears, I guess that's probably one of the biggest ones for me is this idea that I'm going to be near the end of my life at whatever point that is and, and realizing that I didn't do everything that was in my heart to do. And that kind of, it honestly terrifies me. And it reminds me of my favorite Wayne Dyer quote, which was, just gives me chills when I think about this quote. He's got a lot of great quotes. His quote was, don't die with your song still inside of you, which is a double entendre for me because I love music so much. And if I'm honest about it, I haven't really given my music my all. And Whitney, you know this, and close friends and perhaps colleagues of ours who are listeners of the podcast know that I've dabbled in music for 20 years now. I've been in and out of bands and done things like that. But if I'm really, I don't know, I guess if I'm really honest with myself, I haven't given it my all and that kind of eats away at me. You know, It's one of those things where 
sometimes when I'm alone at night, I stay up at night wondering why I'm not giving it my full effort because I love it. Why am I not doing that? I don't know. These are the things that keep me up at night, Wit. I think they keep a lot of people up. And this is a very relatable thing. Or maybe people don't realize why they're being kept up so much. And it also reminds me of another one of our favorite books, which is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And that book is all about resistance. And I think a lot of the times that we face resistance is because of some sort of fear that we have. And so when you're saying, I think what you're saying here is you're not doing the things that you feel like you really want to do or that you ought to do. And it's really helpful, at least for me, to examine the resistance to it. And I was experiencing that recently. I mean, I've had this project to give a really specific example that I've been working on in my heart and my mind for months. And I have the title, it's called Beyond Measure. And I dream of the day where I'll be able to officially announce on the podcast that it's launched. And I I think I actually mentioned it once before because I remember your reaction to it, Jason. And it's probably been on my heart for a lot longer, but it really started to take form in January 2020. and, And then I got this strong feeling about it in February and then COVID-19 happened and I thought, hmm, like I'm going to use that as an excuse not to (laughs) launch this. You know, my plan was to announce it in March or April 2020 and now here we are in May. I've been examining recently, like what is it that is causing me to not do this? And it's absolutely fear. But it's also that resistance. And and I think it's really important to get specific with our fears. And what's causing that sense of resistance, especially when it becomes to something that we're really passionate about. I'm still trying to figure it out. Sometimes it's really, really hard to pinpoint it on your own. And it helps to discuss it a lot, which I think is one of the reasons we love doing this podcast is we find that the more you discuss something with other people or or just say it out loud it becomes easier to identify your fears. It's easier to reflect on things. And this is another reason why meditation and journaling are so powerful is because if we can give ourselves the chance to open up about it, it really helps. I think one of the reasons that we get stuck in our fears is because we're just in our heads, but not in a positive way, right? Like meditation to me is a positive way to be in your head. But then The common experience that we have in our heads is that we just sit there and focus and repeat over and over again all of those fears, all of that resistance that's based in fears. Like, I'm not good enough is a big one. This is why Jason and I released an ebook on this subject called You Are Enough, which you can download for free on our website. It's wellevator.com, W E L L E V A T R.com. And that was the very first offering, meaning like the free offering that we put out there, because this is one of the biggest pain points for people is not feeling good enough. But I feel like that not good enough in itself is a fear, but that feeling is also rooted in like a deeper level of fear, if that makes sense, right? Like, sure, on a surface level, it's easy to say, I don't feel like I'm enough. But then you have to keep going another level to try to figure out like, why exactly don't you feel like you're enough? And 
sometimes it's the fear of going that next level deeper. When I'm saying that, I'm envisioning water, like an iceberg or something, right? And you can see things on the surface, but people are terrified to go underwater to see what's below. Because in the case of an iceberg, maybe there's something even bigger under the surface. And it's like, oh, I don't want to know how bad it is under there. Like, I'm just going to pay attention to what's on the surface level. Or when you think about the ocean, some people are terrified. They're like, there's sharks in there, or there's like crazy sea creatures, or I don't know how deep it is. And like, what if it never ends? And I'm just, I get stuck down there and I can't breathe. I run out of oxygen, you know, like it's hard to go deeper within yourself. So I think a lot of us just stay on the surface and it seems so exhausting sometimes, even for Jason and I. I mean, I can speak for myself here and say that, you know, I'm aware of my resistance and aware of my fears, (laughs) but sometimes the energy of trying to like dissect it and and resolve it feels too much. And I'm like, oh, I'll just do it another time. (laughs) Totally. Totally. I think this is one of the reasons people go to therapy, but then they only like scratch the surface and they're going to therapy for years and years and not really making what we might perceive as progress. I mean, the other thing is that you can't rush these things. And sometimes it does take years and years. Sometimes it takes a whole lifetime. I don't think in our lifetimes we're ever going to get to the point of being like, perfectly healed and perfectly clear and maybe completely fearless. I think that my observations of some of the wisest, most Zen people out there, they still struggle with things. That's part of the human experience. So the goal is not necessarily to like figure it all out and suddenly one day life is just perfect and easy and all of that. But you can take a day-to-day perspective of finding peace and like chipping away at it. And also getting to the point where you feel good in that moment. That's usually what happens for me. You know, I go through these spikes of anxiety. And oftentimes, if I just reflect on it and breathe and be present and acknowledge the fear that I'm having, at least it becomes easier to cope and deal with. And it gives me a starting point for the next day or the next time I want to examine it. The trick is like not putting it off and avoiding it. It's interesting you bring this up and kind of your process wit. And the thing that I flashed on right at the end of you elaborating your feelings and your relationship to resistance and fear, I feel this is an analogy that just flashed in my mind. It's almost like a video game to me in the sense of in a typical video game structure, the levels get gradually or drastically harder as you go through the video game. You know, you fight larger or more powerful monsters or adversaries, depending on the levels you go through. As your powers grow, the challenges and, you know, the scary monsters and villains grow typically, you know, in kind of a a one-player format game. And if I think about the stuff that I've chosen to do, that I've willfully chosen to work toward and do, even though it scared the shit out of me. I mean, there's so many examples of this. Moving away from home scared the shit out of me years ago when I left Detroit for the first time, you know, moving all the way across the country, getting a TV series on Cooking Channel that was scary as hell. Writing my first book felt horrifically scary. And I never talk about this. This is why I wanted to do this episode because I certainly haven't communicated this in any kind of public format, but doing these things scared the shit out of me because I think part of it was I put so much weight and so much importance on doing a good job with these things. 
these opportunities were created or manifested, whatever you want to say about it. And there was almost this idea that, you know, don't fuck it up. Like, do not suck. Like, you're going to be on TV. You're writing this book. You know, you moved all the way across the country to like create this life for you. Like, don't fuck it up, dude. And it was almost like, I don't know that I necessarily enjoyed a lot of or have enjoyed. This is interesting. I've never actually had this realization before, Wit, that I don't think I fully enjoyed or allowed myself to enjoy is more accurate. The creative process of a lot of big projects in my life, because I put so much fucking pressure on myself to do a good job, to be perfect at it, to kick ass, to be like the best I could be. And I think sometimes I not only didn't enjoy it as much or allow myself that enjoyment, but I also didn't necessarily like pat myself on the back afterward and be like, you did a great job. It was like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And if I reflect on it too, this idea of the analogy of a video game as we go through life of identifying something we're afraid of and saying, you know what, that scares the shit out of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. I feel like I've had a willingness to continue to do that. And I also feel there are like final level, not final levels, we don't know what the final levels of life are, but more advanced levels to this game of looking at fear and understanding the fear and choosing to move toward the fear and do the thing we're afraid of anyway. There are still like a few levels where I feel like I've opened the door or like graduated at that level and been like, nope, not ready, not ready. No, 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 no. And like, I, I refuse. <laughs> or to this point, have just been so terrified of those particular monsters or or villains or you know, the monsters and villains are just thought forms and belief systems about ourselves anyway. They're, you know, I believe all these externalized mythologies, we talked about this in the Power of Storytelling episode that we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. But this idea of archetypes of monsters and villains and bad guys, that they're just reflections of figments of our consciousness and belief systems about ourselves anyway. So I know for me, like, if I think about the things that I am like terrified, like those monsters, those villains that I haven't like conquered in the video game per se, it's like finishing a record, like my own album, not like with a band, but like my own songs, like putting my own songs out there and finishing an album is definitely in there. And then I'd say like at the top is like the idea of having kids. And this has come up a lot. You know, very well as my best friend, how much I've struggled with this and how terrified I am of this. But those are two things immediately where I'm like, man, I don't, those are too scary. And I know it and I feel it and I acknowledge it, but I feel like I'm not quite sure how to wrestle with those and win. Why do you use the word win? Huh? Probably because like the video game analogy is like, <laughs> it's very binary of like you, fa you know, you face the scary thing and you either get killed by it <laughs> or you win and defeat it. And so, you know, I've tried to understand the terror of both of these things for me. There's something about permanence or there's something about the lasting ripple effect. This probably is an ego thing, if I'm honest about it, about with putting an album out or putting my music out there, the realization that I'm not as good of a musician or a singer as I think I am, or other people have told me I am. And recording something and paying all of the money and, and the months and months to record something and then finally putting it out and being like, oh, I fucking hate this. Like I'm terrified of putting my full heart into my songs and my music that no one's heard and releasing it and then realizing it sucked and I hate it, right? Like that terrifies me somehow of like the idea of that I think I'm this good, but then I'm actually not. 
And then, you know, with the fatherhood thing, I mean, that's a deep, deep well to spelunk in the sense of like, good God. I mean, there's, there's so much to that. There's like, I'm afraid that I'm somehow going to like, I'm afraid like I'm going to fuck up my kids and like somehow have certain tendencies like my father did and want to abandon them. And I'm going to be a horrible father and I'm going to feel like I'm giving up too much of my freedom and the permanence of caring for another being for the rest of my life like that. Like I'm all right with animals. That's fine. That's like, okay, you guys are like a 20 year commitment, but like a lifetime commitment. I don't know. Something about that terrifies the shit out of me. It really does. And and I've really, you know, in therapy and a lot of psychedelic medicine, particularly the ayahuasca episodes that we'll also link to in the show notes, I've really tried to exhume and get deeper into this fear of permanence and commitment and why this particular idea of fatherhood and caring for a, a child scares the hell out of me. And But it still does. I mean, it still terrifies me. Yeah, it's all very interesting. And I think it's part of the unraveling. And I just pulled up my notes or the highlights I made in, in the book, The Fear Cure, that we referenced earlier. And what you were saying here about winning there's a good line in that book about this, about how we live in a culture that teaches us that if you want something, you have to go get it. You have to push, strive, put your ass in the chair until it's done, make it happen, go for it. Put your nose to the grindstone, no pain, no gain. If it's not going well, try harder, but never let them see you sweat. And for Pete's sake, don't stop and savor what you've achieved because there's a bigger goal right around the corner. Ugh, that hits... Go ahead, keep going. Sorry, I just, ugh. That's like, you know when something hits and it feels like someone just like pricks you with a needle and you're like, ah. Keep yeah. going, keep going, keep going. Well, another point that she makes, the author, Lissa, is that you may very well achieve everything your ego desires only to discover that achieving your ego's desires doesn't satisfy your soul. And that's something that we conceptually understand. We talk about that so much and how we as a culture, especially in a city like Los Angeles or working in the entertainment business and very much so in the influencer community, it's very ego-driven. It's like you just got to go higher and higher. And I think part of the reason we feel that way is because we don't ever feel satisfied because it's all based in the ego. And maybe it's not possible to ever feel satisfied. Maybe that's just not the way the ego works. It's always going to want more. And one of Lissa's points in the book is being less sperm and more egg, meaning I think this is especially important for men to hear, <laughs> is that you can be really good at doing things, but you really need to learn how to receive. Because if you're constantly trying to do, do, do all the time, what are you getting? Like, if you never stop to receive anything, you're literally not getting anything. You're constantly giving. And I think we do live in this culture of give, 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 go, go, go. And deep down, we do want to receive, but we are also not being set up to receive if we're constantly giving and constantly going and striving and wanting more. We don't even have a chance to savor it. Or if we do, it's it's so fleeting before you move on to the next thing. And the big point in the fear cure is about surrendering and that you can actually stop spiraling into all of your fear and your pain and all that suffering and just be. 
and come into a good relationship with uncertainty, facing uncertainty with excitement and curiosity instead of fear, accepting the inevitability of loss, knowing that loss can help you grow or getting uncomfortable can help you grow too, of course. And trusting or or at least hoping that you're being guided by some higher force or energy, whatever you define it as, God, if you'd like, spirit, universe, and tapping into your purpose, trusting the world more without ever having to understand why things are happening. And I think anytime that we experience strong fear, that's just such a great opportunity to examine it and let it pass because we just don't have nearly as much control as we think we do. That's like the biggest lesson I keep hearing is like whenever I'm experiencing fear, it's usually about something that hasn't happened yet. It's projecting into the future or it's a fear that something's going to happen based on the past, my past experiences. But truly, especially if you meditate or journal, if you can be very present with yourself Fear is usually not there in that present moment. And if you journal it, you can look back and see all of the times that you were afraid of something that never actually happened. It reminds me of that there was a magnet, I think, or maybe it was just a picture printed and magnetized to the refrigerator in your home in Venice, Jason. It said it was a famous quote about like... Oh, I know. I know. Go ahead. If I may. Yeah. You're amazing because it's so funny because I wanted to bring this up and you completely read my mind, Whitney. So Did yeah. I read your mind or are we just on the same wavelengths with this? Or I, are we that close that we just can, you know, I mean anticipate? <laughs> if I may, I think this is the one. It's a Mark Twain quote. It was on the fridge at my old house in Venice Beach. Yeah, it was it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It might have been that, but I was actually thinking of something oh, different. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it was on the fridge. Yes, it was. It was. Well, no, no, no. The one I'm thinking about was, it was something along, it's a famous quote, and I don't remember the words off the top of my head, but the idea is, is that a lot of great things have happened to me, but it's like something about like all of these, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, 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 yes. One of those things that's in my head very clearly, but trying to verbalize it into the correct words. It's, I think it ends with none of them actually happened. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and it's so funny. I'm going to look it up right now, unless you know. <laughs> you don't know exactly the phrase either. Wasn't it on the refrigerator? Oh, yeah. It was also marked. It's so funny. It was Mark Twain, but it, I'm an old man, and I've known many a great troubles, but most of them never happened. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Mark Twain dropped some, he dropped a lot of quotes, man. Isn't it always interesting when you find quotes from people in different generations and you realize that as human beings, we have experienced a lot of the same challenges, no you, matter what our circumstances were? Yeah. <laughs> like we know, think that like the modern life is going to solve all of our problems. But the truth is we have these basic problems that are there no matter how much we try to control them or change them or make things better, they're still going to be there. Completely. Yeah. And it, Joseph Campbell, who I love to bring up, as you know, one of my absolute favorite authors, he, in his book, say, you know, the world is a mess. It's always been a mess. In our time right now, 
I feel like there's a tendency to be like, oh, God, things are so horrible right now. He, his point is like the world's always been a messy, confusing, strange place. It's it's always been that way. And our job is not to fix the world or change the world or save the world. He's like, you know, save yourself, change yourself, accept yourself. I'm riffing on his thing. But to your point, Whitney, it's I think for all the advancements and in technology and society and everything that we have and do and create, we still struggle with all of these things, these fears, these shortcomings, these perceptions of not enough. These are certainly not new struggles for human beings. Like what you and I discuss on the podcast, I think, you know, the the deepest underlyings of meaning and purpose and fear and terror and triumph and love and authenticity, like all this shit is not new. Perhaps the circumstances that we're facing, the particular circumstances, of course, have never existed in the combination they have. But just to back up your point, Wit, like the things we struggle and tumble and wrestle with, humanity has struggled and tumbled and wrestled with in different versions for eons and eons. Yep. <laughs> so one thing that I have found really interesting, and I go back to music, you know, for me, music has been something that it's certainly one of the most important things of my life. And I think people don't know me. They don't know how deep the love that I have for music goes. And not just, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, having played in different bands and, and sung and played music for 20 years, but listening to music growing up. And more importantly, in the times that I have been really depressed and really struggled with suicidal ideation and feeling just completely devoid of meaning in my life. And, you know, what is the point? Like massive, massive existential dread. There have been specific albums and artists and music that have been with me through those times. And those songs and artists and records hold a deep, deep, special place. There are books too. But one of the quotes that I remember about fear that has stuck with me for years, and he's not necessarily like one of my favorite artists of all time, but for some reason, this song off of his solo album, Julian Casablancas, uh, most people know as the lead singer of The Strokes, the band The Strokes out of New York City. He created a, a solo album like 10 years ago. And there's a song called uh, 11th Dimension. And the quote from the song is, it won't end here. Your faith has got to be greater than your fear. And I remember the first time I heard that song, I stopped and I was like, whoa. And it goes like, it won't end here. Your faith has got to be greater than your fear. And I was like, that's a brilliant line. And I realized that riffing off of what you said from Lissa's book, The Fear Cure, if I surrender my little ego into thinking that I'm in charge of all this and that I have ultimate control of my life, and I have the faith to surrender that there is, again, God, universe, spirit, my ancestors, spirit guides, whatever anybody believes in, non-physical entities, or even people in your life that are supporting you and loving you in whatever way. I think faith comes in when we can't see the outcome, but we just trust in something bigger and greater and more expansive than ourselves. And I think for me, riffing on this amazing line from Julian's song, when I'm anchored in my faith, when I'm like deeply like in trust that everything's going to be okay and I'm supported and loved and taken care of, I find that the fear doesn't creep in as much. And so I return to that lyric and I listen to that song from time to time just to remind myself of like anchor yourself in that faith. You got to anchor yourself in that because, again, whether that's religious or not, or spiritual or whatever that is to you, I just think that 
for me, anchoring and aligning myself with a greater, more expansive energy is a way to to get me through those times when I'm just scared as hell. Absolutely. And something else that is worth considering too is maybe fear isn't a bad thing. I think that we associate it with, oh, well, I can't be fearful. I mean, that's also part of our culture, right? Think of this hustle culture. And definitely in terms of how many cultures view masculinity is like, you can't show that you're afraid because fear is often associated with weakness. But if this is something that most people, if not all people are struggling with, and a lot of people are just trying to pretend that they don't have that fear. And I think avoiding it may even make it worse. I mean, it's just like anything. If you hold it in, it just eats away at you and it causes stress. I mean, a lot of stress is rooted in fear. And so if you just allow yourself to experience it, and let it pass through you, it might actually happen a lot faster and dissolve a lot faster. It also reminds me of Marion Williamson, who says that the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. Right. And I think if we can experience that fear and then give ourselves more love during it, well, maybe that fear will dissolve as a result of the love. Or maybe a little bit will still be there. You know, I, again, as I said earlier, I don't know if we ever become fully fearless. But when we're feeling fear, we can actually use it to our advantage. So I pulled up some of my highlights from The War of Art. And actually, towards the end of the book, there's a a really great line that says, the amateur believes he must first overcome his fear, then he can do his work. The professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows there is no such thing as a fearless warrior or a dread-free artist. Mm. Oh, wow. Part of the advice is that wow. you can be afraid, but you can still take action in spite of it. That once you get into the action, your fear will recede and you'll be okay. And so I think if you can look at it a different way and look at fear as part of the process, and a good sign, then it actually can benefit you more, right? Because sometimes when we feel like we can't overcome something, we give up. We say, this is too hard. I haven't figured this out. Or we can really beat ourselves up and think like, wow, there's something wrong with me. I'm always afraid and fears, you know, and then that becomes part of our excuse, right? And uh, another section of the War of Art talks about how that fear is a good sign. And just like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. It's telling us what we have to do. The more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Resistance is experienced as fear. The degree of fear equates to the strength of resistance. Therefore, the more fear we feel about a specific enterprise, the more certain we can be that the enterprise is important to us and to the growth of our soul. That's why we feel so much resistance. If it meant nothing to us, there'd be no resistance. Oh, totally. I love that point because it's like, oh yeah, you want me to like learn how to cook eggplant parmigiana and I've never done it before? I don't, you know, so what? I don't really care that much about eggplant parmigiana. You want me to like- I love that you give that example. I I just pulled it out of my ass. I don't, (laughs) <laughs> like I do everything. 
vegan eggplant parmigiana. Yeah, they're like, I challenge you to make a vegan eggplant parm. I'm like, big whoop. They're like, I challenge you to finish your album in six months. I'm like, uh, what? 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 <laughs> Wait, what? What do you mean? Six Another months. point within this book is that the counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. The real one is scared to death. Wow. The counterfeit. Say that one more time because it's profound. The counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. The real one is scared to death. I mean, it's also a matter of how you position yourself because you might position yourself as being really self-confident, but deep down you're terrified. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of influencer parties we go to in LA. But that's the thing. (laughs) It's part of the culture. It's like, I think we associate being like insecure as being really weak. So a lot of us just want to put our faces on and say that we're super confident. And I think about how I've met and judged a lot of content creators over the years. Like, wow, they seem so confident on camera. But then when you meet them in person, they're just super awkward and insecure and nervous. And it's like, what if that's just more of the reality? What if they're just not trying to bullshit you by acting like super confident all the time? Or even the people that stay at home, the super introverted content creators that just don't even want to push themselves to go and put on a, a fake mask or, because they think that they have to. You know, I mean, that's the trouble is that sometimes we feel like we have to present ourselves as something that we're not because that's just the way the culture that we're in is. I think that's actually one of the most common human experiences we have. And it it makes up so many movies, you know, like or TV shows, any fictional works of art are often based on this desire, the storyline, basically, of somebody feeling they have to, they can't be themselves to be loved and accepted. So they present themselves as something that they're not. And then usually in the story, they realize that they should, they're better off being themselves and that when they're themselves, they're more accepted. And I think that's absolutely true and something that a lot of us believe. And yet many people still feel like they need to pretend that they're something else, you know, and I've gone through those phases many times. I'm sure I still do in a lot of ways. I've been slowly unraveling that and I've been in resistance to that culture. I feel like, you know, the act of putting on layers of makeup and doing my hair and and trying to present myself as what is culturally acceptable as an attractive woman. And then I get to an event and I'm like, I spent all this time and effort putting on this mask, this literal mask, and I don't even care. Like, why does it matter? You know? But it's tough because then we see examples of people being rewarded for their masks or people being rewarded for their true selves. And their true selves are not us. So we think, well, I mean, I just had a conversation about this earlier with somebody who is utilizing TikTok and it's like, well, I saw somebody else doing this. So I'm going to go copy them and hope that it works for me too. And like, part of me is like, all right, well, that makes sense as a social media strategy. (laughs) Like, I can see why you would do that. But then another part of me cringed because I thought, gosh, like, if we don't feel like we're getting the results that we want, a lot of times we turned to, other people. And we're like, okay, well, that person's getting results. I'm going to do what they're doing. But if that's not authentic to you, 
they're not your results. They're somebody else's results. You're trying to get them, you know, like right. that right. in itself is really bizarre if you think about it. And it ultimately doesn't feel that good. I take it from me, and I'm sure Jason can say the same thing. It's like the amount of times I've tried modeling myself after somebody else, thinking like, oh, well, I just want what they have. I think, did Paul Jarvis talk about this in our episode with him, Jason? Like, how if we try so hard to live the life like somebody else, we're living their lives, not ours. Yeah, we did touch on that with Paul. And and it also harkens back again to things we've talked about with Joseph Campbell, who had said that if you're going into the forest and you're on a path, it's a path that someone else has created. You're not walking your path. You're walking a path that someone else has already laid out. But to your point, Wade, it, it's conflicting though, right? Because if we look at some of the industries per se, that people are celebrated for their achievements. One of the ones that I think about that is really coming up right now, because there's a a mini series on ESPN, docu-series rather, I'm sorry, called The Last Dance, which is all about the Chicago Bulls run of the championships in the late 90s. And it talks a lot about Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and the whole Bulls mystique. And it's really funny you bring that up because right before we started recording, I decided that I'm going to watch it even though I'm not into sports. Oh, wow. I'm still super curious about watching it. So now I'm really excited to see where we're going to go with this. Oh, right on. Okay. So I'm a huge basketball fan. Spoiler alert to everyone. I played basketball when I was young, junior high school. It's it's my favorite sport. I don't, I actually don't watch any other sports other than basketball. I love that game. It's something that still brings me joy to this day when I pick up a ball and, and go to the local basketball court. The point is, they dove into in one of the episodes this past weekend about not only the relationship between Kobe Bryant, who unfortunately passed away this year, and and Michael Jordan, how much Kobe initially idolized Michael and wanted to cultivate a relationship with him in a personal context, which they did as sort of a big brother, little brother. But more importantly, that Kobe very mindfully and meticulously modeled his playing style and his game and his moves after Michael Jordan. And there's a fascinating video. We'll link to it in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a YouTube video that has a side-by-side dual screen of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant playing games. And it is like a mirror image of each other. The turnaround jump shots, the drives to the basket, the way they would dunk, the way they would assist, the way they carried themselves on the court. It's as if Kobe was, well, first of all, he was a psychotic competitor. They both were like students of the game, first at the gym, last one to leave. But my point is, it's a bit confusing the messages we get from society because we see two of the greatest athletes of our generation. One in Kobe, who admitted he modeled his exact game after Michael Jordan to the T, his moves. He copied his moves. He admitted he copied his moves was incredibly successful, one of the greatest players of all time. But then we have this other thing of, well, you shouldn't do that because then you're copying people. And there's other numerous examples of comedians talking about how much other comedians influenced them. And they said, oh, yeah, I, I took my style from so-and-so, or I, I took the way I deliver jokes from blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't want to fill this entire episode with examples, but the most immediate one I can think of because the docuseries is on is Michael and Kobe. So we get kind of fucked up mentally. I get fucked up mentally sometimes because I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I'm trying to carve my own path as an artist, a chef, a musician, a speaker, a podcast host. 
But then you're like, oh, you guys should do it like, hey, do it like Joe Rogan or do it like Tim Ferriss or, you know, be a musician, you know, be like Ray LaMontagne, be like Amos. I'm like, I want to know who the fuck I am. And the thing I get caught in, Whitney, in the things that matter most to me, in particular music, and I'm glad we're speaking about this because I was speaking to my vocal coach, Claire, about this a couple weeks ago. We had a online vocal session. I said, the greatest struggle for me is I still don't feel like I found my voice. She said, what do you mean by that? I said, when I sing and I listen back to me singing, I still feel like I'm seven different singers in one. Like, oh, he sounds a little bit like Jeff Buckley and maybe a little bit like Scott Weiland. And oh, there's a little bit of Chris Cornell, but he's not really himself. Like, I don't feel like I found my voice. I still feel like I'm imitating to a degree some amalgam of like my seven favorite singers. And it fucks with me hard. Like I struggle with that so much. I mean, I think that's actually one of the big drawbacks to that pressure to put yourself in a mold or the desire to. And a lot of us start to lose sight of who we really are because we're so busy trying to be like somebody else who is successful. And I think it's like it's a shortcut. If you copy somebody, it's a shortcut to getting similar or the same results. And so many people, coaches online, and you know, we've done this too as a marketing strategy simply because we've seen it work. You know, it's it's like, just follow my strategies and you'll get the same results that I did. And those things have actually started to make me cringe a little bit, <laughs> even though I, I think the point in saying those things or, or operating that way is that we do look to other people for examples. We want to see that somebody has walked the path before us. It's like if you think of a literal path through the woods, if you've never been there before, you're afraid you're going to get lost. And if you get lost, maybe you won't survive. So if there is a path in front of you that you've seen other people walk or you've heard that other people have walked and nothing have happened to them, they've survived, then you feel more confident doing it. And so to some extent, it's really helpful when someone says, just follow me, I'll show you the way. But I think sometimes it can be a bit manipulative. It depends a lot on your wording and your aim there is like, if you're either the leader or the follower, and in either case, it's not that you're saying literally follow my every move. Like <laughs> if you think of this path again, like do you only step when the other person steps? You Is your pace the exact same? Are you wearing the same clothes? Like if you were just trying to be a clone of that person, of course you're not going to feel like yourself. But it's kind of like when you go on a trail and you see that some people walk a little outside of it. It's also like coloring outside the lines, you know, when you're given a coloring book is, yeah, your teacher might be encouraging you to color within the lines because they want it to look pretty. And they know that if you color within the lines that it'll look desirable. It's always neat when somebody colors outside the lines because you're like, wow, that's actually very creative. As long as you're not doing that just to be rebellious. But if you have a purpose, if you look at this path in front of you or this drawing in front of you and you say, I actually feel like I can do it in a different way because this serves my purpose more, right? It's like I can add to it. I can make it better in my opinion. You know, if you look at a trail, like maybe there's a rock in front of you or a stick in front of you, you could jump over it and stay on the path or you could go around it because you find that that's more effective for you. And with all these metaphors, it's like, I think 
so much of this is deciding, do you want to carve out your own path? You certainly could. Do you want to follow somebody else's? And if so, do you really want to do it exactly the way that they have simply because it's easier and it requires less fear, (laughs) courage, I should say? Or maybe you find a little combination. You know, there's no harm in being inspired by somebody. There's no harm in following somebody to an, an extent. But at what point is it too close to them? At what point do things a little bit differently because that's what you really want to do? I think that's part of it too, especially when we're little. We're often shamed so much by parents and teachers simply because they don't know any better. That's just how they've been taught to teach or lead or guide. And as kids, we start to be afraid of doing things differently. We're afraid that we won't fit in. We're afraid that we'll be punished. We're afraid that we won't get the results that we're taught that we want. And we're conditioned into this. And it's really sad because then we grow up just feeling like we always have to do it a certain way, that there's a right way and a wrong way. And if it's any different than how other people are doing it, then that's wrong. And if we don't get the results other people are getting, then there's something wrong with us. And that plays out in so many different ways in our lives. We become afraid to color outside the lines or to go off the path a little bit, even if our souls, our hearts are telling us to do it differently. And I think if we really tune in and we get to the root of the fear, as we've been talking about in this episode, if we realize that the only reason we want to do things the same as other people is is because we're afraid we won't get the results, maybe we can just try to do things differently and see what those results are. And also let go of this big attachment to results. I think that's part of it too. You know, it's like this fear that you won't be accepted. And sometimes it's just so temporary. You know, it's like a lot of people are considered crazy or weird because they're different. But then over time, if they stay true to who they are, they actually become accepted in the end. But if you just let go of any attachment to be accepted and let go of attachment to results and follow your heart, then it might end up just playing out completely differently and and it's just a temporary challenge for you, right? It might just morph into something you never could have expected because you were too busy trying to follow what was working for everybody else. I mean, actually, going back to TikTok, I think about this a lot. I'm really passionate about TikTok. I bring it up in a number of episodes. I love it from both a consumption perspective. I find it very entertaining. I'll just sit down and watch TikTok for an hour. (laughs) It flies by. Even though they're like 15-second videos, I'll just sit there one after another. I mean, it's really addictive. It's sometimes nice as a form of entertainment for me. But I am also a creator on there. And gosh, I've had to work through a lot of mental challenges with this platform because I'm bringing in a lot of these preconceived notions about my experience on there. It's like, well, I need to get X amount of followers. And if I don't have this many followers or get this many views in my videos, then I'm not doing it right. And people are going to come see my account and judge me because of my numbers. And then pretty much as soon as that thought goes through my head, I start to think, why does it matter? Like, Who cares what my numbers are? I love this platform. I'm having fun on this platform. I'm being creative on this platform. And I find myself, if I really tap into what I want to do, I just want to play around on there regardless of the results. And I have this like inkling in my heart. It's like I hear this little voice 
just keep going, Whitney. Just keep doing what you like to do on this platform because at any point, it may change. You may find that people will like it over time. Maybe you have to just do something the way that you want to do it for a long period of time and people will enjoy it. But ultimately, if I just continue to detach from any expectations about whether or not somebody's going to accept me or enough people will accept me, it helps me be more free. And I say this as a content creator, and I think a lot of people have this experience on social media, even if they're doing it for personal reasons. It's like we have been conditioned to want all these numbers. You know, it's like, oh, only this many people liked my photo. So maybe that photo wasn't good. Totally. (laughs) And it's like, it's kind of disturbing that we just judge whether or not we are good if we are doing things right based on how many people agree with us in that moment. But my big point is, A, why does it matter? But B, like, why don't you just keep doing what you want to do? And who cares what people think about it? Because what they think may change over time. And again, even if it does never change, who cares? You know what I'm saying? Like, either way, if you let go of your attachment of expectations and attachment to what other people think of you and just do what you want to do, you're winning. Because if they never like you, but you're still doing what you love and how you love to do it, that's all that really matters. And if they end up liking you at some point, that's just kind of icing on the cake. Well, I think this is a quantum shift, though, in how people perceive how numbers reflect on their worth, right? And we've touched upon this in previous episodes, this notion that to, I guess, achieve certain tiers of the video game, we'll go back to that analogy again, for a lot of people in the health and wellness entertainment space, the intersection of a lot of the things that Whitney and I play in and create content and and do our business in, there's a lot of pressure in certain industries to have numbers So you get, for instance, a publishing deal. In book publishing, for a lot of publishers, not all, but a lot, especially the big ones, you know, if your aim is to get a book deal on a big publisher, one of the questions they'll ask phone call is, what's your platform like? How big is your platform? Same thing when a record company is looking at you. And most recently, too, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Carnes. This was a couple of years ago. He said now when he goes into castings a lot, they'll talk to him about his social media following. And he's observed, perhaps in his opinion, you know, less qualified or skillful actors getting cast in certain roles because of the size of their social media following. They're expected to promote the commercial, the short, the digital spot, the movie they're in to their large platform. So I think the pressure that exists in a lot of people's minds around their intrinsic value as an artist or a creator or a a thought leader, whatever it is in your category that you want to be in, that if I want to unlock these, quote, higher levels of the video game, a book deal, a record deal, uh, getting cast in a great TV show, I've got to have the numbers. And these industries kind of feed that monster now, right? It's like, I think our friend Robert Cheek that we had, one of our, our best, and my God, what a deeply visceral and emotional and wonderful episode that was, was talking about this new book he's working on and a lot of the self-worth issues he was facing around publishers telling him, yeah, like your following's not big enough. You need a co-author. And 
I just think there's a lot of flaws to this thinking in these industries that perpetuate this, yeah, we really like your content, but your numbers aren't high enough. And it didn't used to be that way. You very well know, Whitney, you know, 10, 11 years ago, sort of in the real wild west of social media, it was really about energy and content and your particular personality aligning with the publisher, the record company, the brand. And it's evolved in the last decade now into, yeah, we like you, but your numbers aren't good enough. And it can really wreak havoc on people's mindset. It can drive people to buy fake followers and buy fake comments. And what you texted me yesterday, uh, the thing about what was the quote that said, fake followers don't spend real money. What was the quote? You sent some great, brilliant quote yesterday, but the point is- That's exactly what it was. It was fake followers don't spend money or something. Yeah. It's like, okay, you pay what you can easily do. I mean, you can. there are companies out there that you can give $10,000, $20,000 and all of a sudden overnight, you've got 500,000 followers, right? They'll create accounts and follow you. But then when it comes time to sell a book or sell a record or have an affiliate deal where the brand or the record company or the publisher is expecting you to move a certain number of books based on your following, there is going to be a reckoning at a certain point where they're like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, how have you only sold like 1500 books? You have half a million followers. Like, so even if people feel a pressure to, quote, cheat the system or going back to the topic of this episode, they're afraid that they're not going to unlock these higher levels of achievement in their industry. If you buy fake followers and you buy fake comments and you do get the big deals, it will bite you in the ass eventually. I think at least our egos hope that's the case. You know, we also have this, <laughs> we have this desire to, again, do things right and then hope that people that don't do things That we think are right get punished for it. It's like such a big judgment that we place on other people. And one thing that I've been learning is to let go of those judgments. And if somebody else thinks that the way they're doing it is right and that conflicts with what I think is right, then it's really not up to me to decide what's right or wrong. (laughs) You know, I've gone through a lot of phases. If I tap into it, that is my ego talking, or sometimes that's fear. Like, I don't want to do things that way. And that person is doing it and they're getting results, but I think they're cheating. So I am afraid that they're right all along and that cheating is being rewarded. And thus, Ah. you know what I'm saying? Like Ah. It's kind of like the ego hoping that somebody is just because they're doing things differently than me or or I perceive them as doing it the wrong way or... Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of just like cheating the system and trying to think of another word there, but... I found myself judging those people so much and it takes a lot of effort to not judge. And I've been really trying to unravel that for many years because I've been in the habit of judging people. I've been in the habit of saying like, well, that's the wrong way. And I really hope that they get punished for it. And I hope they fall on their ass for doing it the wrong way because that'll give me satisfaction. And I think the fear there is that they're going to be rewarded for cheating. They're going to be rewarded for doing it differently than me. And then I'm going to find out that maybe I should have done it that way too. Or I'm going to I'm not find out, but I'm going to believe that I should have done it their way all along. And that maybe it's like the ego saying, oh, maybe my way was the wrong way all along and their way was the right way. I think that there's like a big judgment on on cheating in general, but maybe it isn't just cheating. Maybe it's actually just a different strategy. Like who even defines what cheating is or not? I mean, granted, we're not talking about like relationship cheating. That's a whole nother subject matter. (laughs) 
even with that, I'll be honest, I'll just say it here is like over the, as I've gotten older, I, I've actually started to have compassion for people that quote cheat on one another because the, when I was younger, I was just paying so much attention to this cultural definition and shaming of cheating. And I was like, I can't believe that person would do that to the other. You know, how dare they? The older I get, the more perspective I have on relationships and what other people have been through and just learned more, I actually can start to see why people make those decisions. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but they've made a decision based on maybe fear of themselves or maybe it's their ego or weakness or whatever it is. Like it's just that cliche line of people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Like most of us have experienced something where we've made a decision that hurt somebody else. Most of us have done something because our ego was in charge or fear was ruling us or we just wanted to be rebellious and say, screw it. I'm just going to do whatever I want and I'm more important, you know? And I think this comes to play in our professional lives and so many different examples of just like all of these rules that we have. And sometimes people just don't want to follow the rules, even if that means they hurt a few people. They just want to be selfish. Who are we to say what's right or wrong is my point, you know? Like everybody kind of is on a different path for different reasons. And I think when you like label something as right or wrong, that's usually like an ego perspective on it. It's interesting because I think certainly in the context we're talking about of industry and followings and things like that, there are not in defined set of rules, you know, like if we if we compare it to say sports or we compare it to an activity where it's like, okay, you can't dribble out of bounds or you can't shoot from this area. Or you can't there are defined metrics and rules to certain activities in life. And what we're discussing in particular in terms of, you know, social media, book sales, record sales, it's something Whitney and I talk about a lot because we we hear a lot of stories and insider information about people that have done some really interesting things to sell products and sell books. And to your point, Whitney, you know, there aren't a set of rules to abide by. So is it actually cheating if there are no set of rules? Or is it just, again, our judgment of like, they ought not to do it that way? It's interesting you bring that up. It really is. So I want to actually jump into a book that I revisited recently that I started reading years ago. One of those situations where, oh, I love this book. I'm so excited. And I'm going to read the first two chapters and lay it down. So I've gone deeper into this book. The book is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert is somebody that Whitney and I both enjoy on her social media feeds. Uh, we both feel she pretty consistently puts out some super heartfelt, vulnerable, just real, real stuff. Her captions and her posts, we just adore Elizabeth Gilbert and her spirit. And there's a chunk of the book that I want to read really quickly about fear specifically. And it starts off with uh, the fear you need and the fear you don't need. Now, you probably think I'm going to tell you that you need to become fearless in order to live a more creative life, but I'm not going to tell you that because I don't happen to believe that's true. Creativity is a path for the brave, yes, but it's not a path for the fearless. And it's important to recognize this distinction. Bravery means doing something scary. Fearlessness means not even understanding what the word scary means. If your goal in life is to become fearless, then I believe you're already on the wrong path because the only truly fearless people I've ever met were straight up sociopaths and a few exceptionally reckless three year olds. And those both aren't good role models for anyone. 
The truth is you need your fear for obvious reasons of basic survival. Evolution did well to instill a fear reflex within you because if you didn't have any fear, you'd lead a short, crazy, stupid life. You'd walk right into traffic blindly. You'd drift off into the woods and be eaten by bears. You'd jump into giant waves off the coast of Hawaii despite being a really poor swimmer. And you might even marry a guy who said on the first date, well, I don't necessarily believe people were designed by nature to be monogamous creatures. So yeah, you absolutely do need some fear in order to protect you from actual dangers, but you do not need your fear in the realm of creative expression. Seriously, you don't. Just because you don't need your fear when it comes up to creativity, of course, doesn't mean your fear won't show up. And trust me, your fear will always show up, especially when you're trying to be inventive or innovative or do something brand new. Your fear will always be triggered by your creativity because creativity asks you to enter the realms of uncertain outcomes, and fear hates uncertain outcomes. Your fear, which is programmed by your evolution to be hypervigilant and insanely overprotective, will always assume that any uncertain outcome is destined to end in a bloody, horrible death. Basically, your fear is kind of like a mall cop who thinks he's a Navy SEAL. He hasn't slept in days, he's hopped up on Red Bull, and he's liable to shoot at his own shadow in an absurd effort to keep everyone, quote, safe. This is all totally natural and totally human, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is, however, something that very much needs to be dealt with. So this is a really cool analogy that Elizabeth gets into of of how she deals with her fear. And this is something that I try and remember to do all the time. It comes up in my mind often when I feel my fear come up in a big way. So she says, this is how I've learned to deal with my fear. I made a decision a really long time ago that if I want my creativity in my life, and I do, then I have to make space for fear too. Plenty of space. I decided that I would need to build an expansive enough interior life that my fear and my creativity could always peacefully coexist since it appeared that they would always be together. In fact, it seems to me that my fear and my creativity are conjoined twins, as evidenced by the fact that creativity cannot take a single step forward without fear marching right alongside it. Fear and creativity share a womb, and they were born at the same time, and they still share some vital organs. This is why we have to be really careful how we handle our fear, because I've noticed that when people try to kill off their fear and try to become fearless, they often end up inadvertently murdering their creativity in the process. So I don't try to kill my fear. I don't go to war against it or try and banish it. Instead, I make space for it, heaps of space every single day. I'm making space for fear right this moment, and I allow my fear to live and breathe and stretch out its legs comfortably. And it seems to me that the less I fight my fear, the less it fights back. So if I can relax, then I see my fear relaxes too. In fact, I cordially invite fear to come along with me everywhere I go. I even have a welcoming speech prepared for fear, which I deliver right before embarking on any new project or big adventure. And it goes something like this. Dear fear, creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together, and I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job to do in my life and that you take your job very seriously. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting, and may I say you are superb at your job. So by all means, keep doing your job if you feel you must, but I will also be doing my job on this road trip, which is to work really hard and stay focused and creativity will be doing its job, which is to remain stimulating and inspiring. 
And, you know, there's plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us. So just go ahead and make yourself at home. But understand this point. Creativity and I are the only ones who are making any decisions along the way. I recognize and respect that you are part of this family. So I will never exclude you from our activities. But still, your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat and you're allowed to have a voice, but you are not allowed to have a vote. You're not allowed to touch the roadmaps. You're not allowed to suggest any detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. And dude, you are not allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, my dear old familiar friend fear, you are absolutely forbidden to drive. And then we head off together, me and my creativity and my fear, side by side by side forever, advancing once more into the terrifying but marvelous terrain of unknown outcomes. <sighs> so potent. It's so good. Was that the entire book, Jason? <laughs> a full that was, chapter? That, that was, was not- quite like I was expecting like maybe a couple of lines, but wow. I felt like it was such a wonderful she's such a wonderful writer in the sense that she takes non-physical things, right? Like fear. And she anthropomorphizes them, which means she gives them a human form, a human spirit, as she creates this context of creativity and fear as conjoined twins and passengers on this road trip. I loved it so much I had to read the whole thing. And that is not the whole chapter, by the way. So this big magic book is something that I love as a companion to the other books that we've mentioned, right? We talked about the War of Art with Stephen Pressfield. We talked about The Fear Cure, Lissa Rankin. We mentioned Joseph Campbell's books, The Joseph Campbell Companion. Uh, we talked about The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. These are all really wonderful perspectives talking about purpose and regret and focus and fear. And I just feel like it's a wonderful time right now, especially as we've been sheltering in place and having so much time to look at ourselves. You know, I, I feel like for you, dear listener, if you've had any of these tussles with your fear or your sense of purpose, or maybe even coming out of this time as the shelter-in-place orders are are just now being lifted here in California, at least during the time of this recording this week. It's an interesting time as we emerge out of this cocoon, this womb together of what is it we want to do? Who do we want to be in the world after all this? And I just feel like this topic of fear and purpose and creativity and courage, it I don't know. It feels to me, Whitney, that these topics somehow are more potent than ever. I don't know. It feels like they carry more weight and importance than they ever have, for me at least right now. Absolutely. I agree. So dear listener, if it is your first time joining us, thank you so much for being here as we spelunk the deep caverns of the human experience. That's really what this podcast is all about. Any and all topics of what it means to be human and this beautiful, messy, confusing glorious ride of existing here on this planet and figuring out what it means to be alive. And if you are a longtime listener, thank you so much for your support as we release three episodes a week. We have an amazing Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, that if you feel compelled to join and support, we are always upgrading the experience from our equipment to the guest experience to creating New things like mm, some live experiences when we can all get together in larger groups. So your patronage and your support as a patron on our Patreon account is much appreciated. And for all of the links to the books and the resources, the YouTube videos, the music, any and all things to support you on your life journey are again in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 
And there you will also find links to all of our social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, all the major social media accounts. So you can always shoot us an email to hello at wellevator.com with your feedback. We always love it when you comment on the show notes. Listen, we're easily stalkable and easily reachable. We, it, it ain't hard to reach us. So whatever medium you feel comfortable contacting us, we always love hearing from you. And we just love you digging in with us in this crazy journey called life. So until the next time, thanks for being here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, and we'll see you and connect with you again soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.